Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Welcome on this another beautiful, bright Sunday morning. Spring is in the air. The robins are back. Are you seeing them? It looks like uh, looks like you, you never say you never say never in March, but it looks like we may have uh, gotten through it. So, uh huh. It's a bird. Harbinger. Sign. Oh, let's look at the announcements. Not much today. Uh, again, offerings in the offering box. Andrea's number. And days and praise. Days of praise and acts and facts are both here for your use. Anything else that we've forgotten? We we have we we went with the puzzle bulletin today, so feel free to open it from either direction. Did you? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I I got that message yesterday. Mary Greenwood passed yesterday. Um, I don't know a thing about it. Is there gonna be a? Does anybody know if there's gonna be a funeral or? Sorry, maybe Star will have some news today if we see her later today. So, okay. I was trying to think when I heard she passed how long it's been since I've seen her, and I bet it's been 20, maybe 25 years since I've seen her, so long, long time. I remember when we were first coming here, um, her and Jay were, were here um, very regular, and 
um, long, long time ago. So, uh, yeah, so remember the family um, as they mourn uh, Mary's. All right. Thank you, Terry. Anything else? All right. I'll direct you then to the scripture for meditation this morning, taken from John's Gospel, chapter 14, read verses 1 through 14. 1675 in the Pew Bible. Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless us as we worship together.
Dale, would you open for us? Remain standing. Take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 498. 498 in the red.
Good morning. Do you have a favorite hymn? I do. Um, 284 in the brown. 284 in the brown. Cool. Do you have a reason for this hymn this morning? Um, just Scripture reading this morning is taken from 2 Peter, chapter 3, we'll be reading verses 1 through 13, 1896 in the Pew Bible, 2 Peter 3, 1 through 13. Stand with us as we read. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you 
you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it had, had, has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by out of water and by water by these waters also the world of of that time was deluged and destroyed by the same word the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly but do not forget this one thing dear friends with the lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day the lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness instead he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance the but the day of the lord will come like a thief the heavens will disappear with a roar the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. hymnal again and turn to number 495 495 in the red trinity
going to have to get a stool to get on my stool. text is 2 Peter 3. Six weeks ago, we began a series on the Passion of Christ, loosely tied to Gibson's film by the same title. We've been trying to answer questions about Jesus raised by the film, but rather left unanswered. We have not been taking a straw poll of human opinion on these things, but have searched the Bible to see what God's word has to say on the subject. So far, we've considered four things. Number one, Jesus existed prior to his birth as the Son of God, co-equal with God the Father, so he came to earth and took on the form of a human being. Number two, Jesus was not just a good man or a godly man or a prophet of God, although he was all those things. He was and is God's unique son, proven by his teachings, his miracles, and the fulfilled prophecies about his life that we find in the Old Covenant. Number three, we learn that the cross was not an accident in the mind of God for his son, but the very mission that God the Father had given him. God handed Jesus over to the executioners, very true, but also true that Jesus laid down his own life of his own accord. He says that, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Number four, in the death of Jesus on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for his people's sins, and thus everyone for whom Christ died will be forgiven. Now that's unique to sovereign grace understanding. All for whom Christ died will be forgiven and saved. None will be lost. So if you think uh, like our Arminian brethren that Christ died for the whole world then the outcome would be that all of them would be saved and not lost. But that's not the case. There's a hell to avoid as well as a heaven to gain. We learn that you and I and everyone have a responsibility to respond right to the gospel of grace and to repent of our sin and believe in Jesus as Savior. And his promise is this. Of all that come to Christ in this way, he will turn none away but will raise them up in the last day. 
So this brings us to today's message, which, in which I'm asking the question, where is Jesus now? Where is Jesus now? As we come, let's ask the Lord to be with us. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the, the history that we have of Jesus' ministry, and also the promises of his work. And we pray, Lord, that you will bless us with an understanding for the betterment of our souls and also for the salvation of our souls if we are lost and without you. There are not many ways to heaven. There's one way. Jesus said he alone is the way, the truth and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him. That's a pretty exclusive claim. And the world is saying, no, no, there are many ways, but the world is wrong. Deliver us from falsehoods, Lord. Plant our feet solidly on the word of God, which is the truth. Thank you for not lying to us. Thank you for telling it like it is. Many of the things in the word of God are hard for us to swallow, but we must swallow our pride and rely upon what your word says. Grant us the faith we don't have. Grant us the repentance we don't have. Bring us, draw us into your fold, we ask. And for thus that know thee, we pray that you'll strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. In today's message, we're asking the question, where is Jesus now? Where is he now? If you do not believe anything the Bible says about Jesus, his preexistence, his incarnation, his atoning cross, his miracles, his glorious resurrection. If you're a skeptic, you will likely answer this question by saying something like, well, where is Jesus? He's dead and he's buried in some grave somewhere. Though if the authorities who orchestrated Jesus' crucifixion and guarded his tomb with Roman soldiers, if they had had a body to produce of the dead Jesus, they would have likely loaded it on a cart and trailered it throughout Jerusalem for all to see just so they could disprove the disciples' claim that Christ had risen. I mean, would they let that pass? They could have killed Christianity in its infant stage in one fatal blow by producing Jesus' corpse. Instead, they had to bribe the Roman soldiers to lie that the disciples had come in the night and stolen the body of Jesus. Think about that. That's quite a feat for ordinary fishermen versus Roman soldiers who were armed who had sealed the stone in the tomb entrance, who knew that falling asleep on the job as a Roman soldier was a sure sentence to them of death for their own negligence. You want to read about that? Let me give you two texts. Matthew 27, we're not going to read them right now, but I'll give them to you. Matthew 27, 62 and following. And Matthew 28, 11 
and following. Two texts that uh, make it very clear, if you're a Roman soldier and you fall asleep on the job, it's your neck. So that's a real stretch to say, well, the soldiers were sleeping and the disciples came and they stole the body away while the soldiers were sleeping. There was no sleeping on the job. What is more, it is clear that the disciples themselves, get this now, they were not looking for Jesus to rise from the dead. Although he had been careful to tell them this many times. Okay, so where were they and what were they doing? They were hiding behind closed doors, locked doors, in a clandestine location, hoping that the authorities did not have a lead on where there was where their hideout was. That's what they were doing. Why would they do that? Well, because they thought they were next. They thought they were next to be the targets of the executioners. You remember that for Jesus to appear before them, he had to materialize through locked doors. He had to eat a piece of broiled fish in their presence because the disciples thought, ooh, ooh. We're looking at a ghost. Ghosts don't eat. <laughs> Very simple. Luke 24, verse 36 and following. You want to check that out. Well, Thomas was not there on that first appearance. And he refused to believe that his fellow disciples were telling him the truth. Here's what he said to them. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. John 20, verse 25. Whoa. So, what happened? Well, a week later, Jesus appeared to the disciples in the same house walked right up to Thomas and commanded him to put his finger in his wounds and his hand in Jesus' side. And he rebuked Thomas, saying, Stop doubting and believe. John 20, verse 27. Stop doubting and believe. Of course, you realize the underlying logic of Thomas' criteria. If he could see and handle the person with the marks of crucifixion in his body, it would be proof positive that the man standing before him was the same Jesus they had entombed but three days earlier. You know, I'm glad for our sake that we have this evidence in the Bible about doubting Thomas. Because he has been labeled that and a lot of people have been convinced of the reality of Jesus' resurrection by Thomas's doubting. And
and his insisting on seeing and handling the wounds Jesus suffered in his crucifixion. Here's a guy that I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. You know the expression, seeing is believing? That was Thomas. We were not there to see the risen Jesus, but Thomas was. And so were the other disciples. Nonetheless, their testimony is more than credible because guess what? They weren't looking for Jesus to come alive from the grave. They weren't. They were, in a sense, all like doubting Thomas. They had to be convinced, like any of you skeptics that might be here today. But what they saw and heard and handled convinced them beyond doubt. And Christ gave them action. Because you have seen me, Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John, it's you, it's me, it's all whose spiritually blind eyes God opens to repentance and faith. Let me ask the question, is resurrection so far-fetched for an omnipotent God for the one who created the world and all within it. Like the virgin birth, Gabriel's answer to Mary is appropriate to us here. What did he say to her? Nothing is impossible with God. Luke 1 verse 37. We're so used to living in a show me world of one dimension. And we have so elevated human logic to be the measure of all truth that we cannot conceive of anything beyond our puny little realm of experience and knowledge. God says of himself, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 25. Within context it shows that God is out to destroy the wisdom of the wise, to frustrate the intelligence of the intelligent. Verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 1. You will reason yourself right into hell with your wisdom unless you repent. Unless you submit to the knowledge of God revealed in the scriptures. Now let me say that God wants you to know him. He does. He has not hidden himself from exposure. He tells you about himself and how to come to know God in the Bible where God never ever lies. If you perish, it will be because of what Paul writes of the Thessalonians 2 verse 10 and following. He says of them, they perish 
because they refuse to love the truth. And so be saved. For this reason, God sent so that they will believe the lie. The lie that the charlatans and the propagate. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. God isn't going to argue the point with you forever. In the days of Noah, God put it this way. My spirit will not contend with man forever. There it is. Genesis 5.3. And in both dispensations, the old and the new, he says, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Even of Israel that came out of Egypt in the Exodus by the mighty hand of God, the writer goes on to tell us, so we see that they were not able to enter and her what? The promised land. Because of their what? Their unbelief. That's what barred them from Palestine. And the land of Canaan was a prototype of heaven's landscape, which is promised to all Christ's people. We enter God's true rest the same way Israel could have entered Canaan by faith in God's word. Paul goes on, For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Simply put, they didn't believe it. And then he goes on to say, now we who have believed enter that rest. Hebrews 4, verse 2 and 3. Surely as faith in God is the key which opens the door to his blessed rest and peace and forgiveness in Christ, so unbelief is the bolt and padlock which bars our entrance into the goodness of God's salvation. Faith pleases God, unbelief angers God. Don't believe me? Let me read it for you. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert, to whom he did, God did swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? Hebrews 3, 17 and 18. You know, nothing irritates God more than for you to treat him like a liar. Perfect in holiness, one whom the Bible declares is not a liar like men and one who cannot lie. Hebrews 6, verse 18. And that is the rationale of God's just condemnation. Truth stands before us all. But when we don't believe it, when we do not respond aright, 
It's proof that we prefer wickedness and lies. And in that we confirm the immoral state of our hearts and we vindicate God's wrath upon us. God can say, well, you didn't believe me. Salvation was handed to you in the gospel. You didn't believe it. You didn't act on it. Not only is this evident in the doctrine of the resurrection with its infallible evidences, but it is also true with regard to Jesus' continued existence and rule and promised second coming. After Jesus' resurrection, he spent about uh, 40 days on earth appearing to his disciples, teaching them, preparing them for the coming of the Spirit upon them. Let me read it for you. Giving them many convincing proofs that he was alive. Acts 1 verse 3. And on one occasion... 100 followers at one time. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. That's a lot of witnesses. And it was just outside of Jerusalem after one of these times of instruction and encouragement. From their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going, and suddenly challenged them. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Acts 1, verse 9 and following. Where's Jesus now? He has ascended into heaven, his original dwelling place. He has come full circle. Beginning as the eternal word of creation who formed the universe at God's command, he came into our world that was made through him, John 1, verse 10. He became flesh and made his Dwelling among us, John 1, verse 14. That he might become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, verse 29. Where is he now? He's returned home. He has assumed his lawful place of authority and power. He indicated this himself in his prayer the night of his arrest. He says, I have brought you glory on earth. He's talking to the Father, Heavenly Father. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. John 17, verse 4 and 5. In other words, his work is done. He's saying to the Father that he's coming home to assume his divine right of glory and rule. This was all part of the plan from the beginning. 
Philippians 2, verse 8 and following, describes Christ's cross work in this way. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The cross was his humiliation, the ascension his exaltation, and then being seated at the right hand of God. And now that Christ is exalted, now that he has returned home to heaven to be with his Father, what is he doing? Well, Paul tells us that God exalted him and exerted his power to raise Christ from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Ephesians 1, verse 20 and This right-hand position in Scripture is always the place of preeminence and power. I think we even use a similar expression in our day. When I was working for my dad as a young adult, he would tell customers, he's my right-hand man. Dad would say that about me. By which he meant that he could leave the operations to me and be assured that I would make good decisions, get the work done. He did not always have to be present looking over my shoulder. God the Father, in league with his Son, set Jesus above all other authorities and powers so that all fullness is in him and he fills everything in every way, the scripture says. God has done this for the sake of Christ's body, his church. You and me. Our Jesus rules and reigns to benefit his people. If he were not in control, in control you know what? We would be in deep trouble. Our doom would be set and our fate sealed with trouble and loss. But Christ rules in favor of those who believe in him. The writer, the writer of Hebrews words it this way. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. Let me just say as an aside here, it's a mighty person who can but speak to have all things sustained as he wishes it so. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and so he became as much superior to angels 
as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. To, I mean, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Hebrews 1. He's not an angel. He's above the angels. Brethren, we are now moving towards the consummation of the age. And Jesus is not inactive in the interim. Right now, Jesus is in the seat of rule and he is reigning from his throne. When you think kingdom, do not think real estate. Think reign. God already lays claim to real estate. You want me to read it for you? Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. That's a pretty extensive statement, don't you think? The earth, everything in it, and all of the living things in the world. They're his. Psalm 2 says, the nations conspire, the peoples Let us break their chains, the Lord's chains, they say. Fetters. Psalm 2, verse 3. What are they saying? They're saying God and his rules for living are a burden. They're too restrictive. It cramps our lifestyle of sin. And this, so this is how the people in revolt think. Let's eliminate God. Let's eliminate Jesus. And you eliminate the rule book. But the same psalm says that God laughs at the puny efforts of Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Dash them to pieces like pottery. Psalm 2, verse 8 and 9. any and all rebellion to his rule. But how much sweeter for those now in this life. The believer has a glorious prospect now and when Jesus comes again. 
there's now no condemnation to those that's coming but it's secured right now been talking about the second coming of Jesus for years but where is he did he forget can't find his way back if that is you this morning guess what you're written up how can you do that where in our text verse 3 in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our fathers... Just status quo. It's always been the same ever since the creation. So the idea seems to be that life goes on as it always has. Nothing changes. And so since Christ has not returned, he will never return. His coming again must be bogus. It must be a fairy tale or the wishful thinking of ignorant and superstitious people. Peter answers these scoffers and us as well with two irrefutable observations. Number one, verse five. These scoffers, says Peter, deliberately forget. So this is intentional, right? If something's deliberate, it's intentional. They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, the earth was formed out of water and by water, and by these waters also the world of that time was deluged or drowned and destroyed. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about Noah's flood. And he's saying, everything does not go on as it has been since the beginning of creation. God has interjected judgment on rebel sinners in a great flood. Wiped out the world of that day. And consequently, verse 7, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Judgment happened before by a universal flood. You see, one of the things God promised after Noah's flood is that he would never again destroy the world by water, by flood. He promised that. But he didn't say he wouldn't destroy it some other way. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 6 and following, 
Paul writes, God is to you who are troubled, to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed. With his powerful angels. He will punish those who are not, who do not know God, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punishable with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 6 and following. When he comes again, He's coming to consummate the age, brethren, and to destroy the earth and the heavens with fire. Why? Because the scripture says, Jesus' words say, that he has promised a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. I've often wondered about that. I mean, what do you do with a sin-filled world? All the bloodshed, all the murders, all the lies, all the deceit, all the conspiracies, all the betrayals. What do you do with that? God says, I'll tell you what we do with that. We burn it all up. We destroy it. We make a new heaven. We make a new earth. Wherein dwelleth righteousness. Here's the question. Will you be among the saints? Will you be among the people? that populate that new heaven and that new earth. You can be by faith in Christ. He came to die for sinners. Will you be among those? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Sometimes it's a hard pill to swallow because we don't like to talk about judgment. We want to talk about salvation and peace and wonderful things and healings and all of that. We don't want to talk about the elements melting in fervent heat. We don't want to talk about the unsaved being destroyed because they include some of our relatives. They may include us. But God's telling it like it is. He once destroyed the whole world through a deluge, a universal flood, and when we read the Genesis account, it says the water of the flood exceeded the highest mountain by so many meters. So Everest is the highest mountain we know. And this had to be a global flood, not local. And now he tells us, in the person of your dear son, that when he returns, he comes with fire. And we'll destroy heaven and earth and create a new heaven and a new earth. Lord, are we going to be mockers of that just like they were about the flood? It eventually became so patently true that 
They cried out for the hills and the mountains to fall on them and to hide them from the judgment. That's going to happen again. I pray that we won't be calling on the mountains to hide us, but we'll be coming in faith, falling on our knees before the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior and creator of the universe. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Save whom you will today. For your glory and our good, we ask these things. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, 508. I think my stool has been letting me down. I got to get off this thing before I disappear into the floor. It's down quite a bit. Either I gained weight or the gas piston uh, lost its power. 508 in the red hymnal. When you find it, will you stand with me?
great hymn of Charles Wesley. I don't know if you noticed that. Father, you are so great. Your salvation is great. You reach down from heaven in the person of your son. You sent him on a mission and the mission was not pleasant. It was to all be offered up a sacrifice for the sins of your people. But even so, Jesus said, no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. So there was no coercion. There was no arm twisting. He willingly came. He willingly laid down his life. Who does that? Greater love has no one than this, writes Paul, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. Lord, we thank you for that. If there is one here struggling with the reality of the cross and why that would be necessary, help them to see their own sin and that the wages of sin is death. And if you're going to have an escape from that, someone has to be a substitute. Someone has to come in and say, I will die for him. I will die for her. And that was your beloved son. May we trust that. We thank you for your great sacrifice. Help us to believe. Grant us your repentance and faith. For the glory of Jesus and for our good, we pray these things with thanksgiving. Amen. We are dismissed. Thank you.